Chair, welcome, uh, welcome everyone. Um, the session is being recorded. I don't know whether uh, Daniel mentioned this, but for the Q and A session, uh, there won't be any recording, so no. Um, no concern for privacy for any of you here. My name is Ivo. I am um, I am from a legal background, but I'm doing my my DPhil here at the Center for Socio Legal Studies, and I'm looking at transitional justice issues in a broader context. I'm looking at constitutional courts in post-totalitarian societies, and as Daniel mentioned, it is an amazing opportunity to have OTJR here uh, where you combine the knowledge and the expertise and passion of so many people coming from so many different disciplines uh, to talk about issues that are very topical and pressing. And one of the issues um, that we'll be discussing today is incredibly topical and pressing as well. And we are very grateful to have Brioni here, who, as Daniel said, um, is an old friend of OTGR and more than an old friend of OTGR, actually. So she is a founding member, a member of our group from years ago and served as a convener of, of the group as well. So I guess this, um, this presentation is a bit of a homecoming or like one of many homecomings for you yeah. as well. Yeah. To an extent, a couple of words uh, about Bryony and the topic today and then I'll just uh, leave it to her. Uh, Bryony is an assistant professor at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Warwick and also associate researcher at Swiss at the University of Basel and at the Center for Criminology or of Criminology here at the University of Oxford. And um, she's also a co-convener of the Reconciliation and Transitional Justice Commission of the International Peace Research Association and a co-chair of the Human Rights and Transitional Justice Standing Group of the European Consortium for Political Research. Um, Brioni's research looks at the intersection between international development transitional justice and peace building, with a particular focus on reconciliation, citizenship, political agency, the politics of intervention um, in societies undergoing a political transition from a um, serious past of um, human rights atrocities. Um, you can read up on the work of Bryony at the University of Warwick and in the little abstract that we have on the law faculty website about the many interesting projects that she's been involved in. Um, the one that we'll be talking about today um, focuses on a chapter in the recently published book Resistance and Transitional Justice that is just here. I'm sure that you can have a look after, after the talk if you if you're interested. Um, and the chapter that Brioni will discuss with us today actually deals with um, an analysis of discursive strategies of people who self-identify as resistors against the transitional justice process in both Cote d'Ivoire and uh, Ivoirian diaspora um, mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, the really interesting thing about this talk, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about this, is that I guess it's a non-standard take on transitional justice because the chapter deals with seeking um, what Brian calls just justice and considering possibly the idea of people who self-identify as resistors that the transitional justice process itself is unjust. So it is not the standard narrative that you have of transitional justice being like the pink nice picture. But transitional justice is something that people who identify as resistors find as a manifestation of the will of oppressor of an illegitimate president supported by an ex-colonial power of France in Côte d'Ivoire. Um, and they see it as an obstacle to their um, will to defend just justice and the Ivorian sovereignty and democracy. And um, I guess Brioni is going to mention some of your methodology and also like how you got along 
your sources, which would be very interesting for me personally. But then without further ado, I just let you tell us what these discursive strategies suggest. And thank you once again for, for being here with us yeah. <laughs> from the beginning. <laughs> Thank you so much for the invitation and such a warm and very detailed introduction. <laughs> so you could give my talk for me. <laughs> um, so yeah, last time I was um, talking about this book in the chats from the book, I failed to bring with me any information about the actual book. So I'm kind of going overload on the self-promotion today. So I do have the book if you want to have a look and also um, a series of flyers. If you're interested in buying the book, no obligation, you don't have to. Um, you can get a discount with the flyers, and I could also send them to anyone who's interested who might happen to be listening to the podcast um, as well. I have a PDF version of the flyer. Um, so, yeah, as, as um, Yvo's already said, um, the chapter that I'm focusing on in the presentation is part of a much broader book project and project overall. So I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking a little bit about the project and the kind of assumptions going into it, where we've come from, a bit about the methodology, our conceptual approach to resistance, because it's not written about that much in, in, in the transitional justice scholarship. Um, and then talk more specifically about the chapter with some empirical detail. Um, and I can obviously give more on that and more methodological detail if you're interested in the Q&A and then kind of wrap up a bit with what I see as being the main contributions um, of the book, like what we, in a sense, would like to be the take-home messages, what we want to contribute to <coughs> the transitional justice um, literature. Um, so the book, the edited book, was one of the main um, academic outputs of uh, the project, which was called Resisting Transitional Justice, alternative visions of peace and justice. We also published a special issue of Conflict and Society, if anyone's interested. Um, and that wasn't written by, we edited the volume, but the um, there's individual articles written by people not actually connected with the project. So you've got other case studies. Someone writes about Tunisia, for example, someone about Bahrain, and um, really interesting kind of empirical diversity to that, if you want to follow up on that. Uh, we also published a working paper at the start of the project as part of the Swiss Peace Working Paper series. Um, so the project itself ran from 2012 to 2015. We started the idea for the book in 2012 and had a writer's workshop in 2012, and it's only just been published this summer by Routledge. That's not their fault at all. They were wonderful. It was entirely our fault, being quite slow. And um, because it was a kind of, um, I'll say a bit more about that later on, but it was a, a large writing team working across three different countries, and so we really valued that process, and it obviously takes a little bit longer maybe than, than writing a monograph. Um, so it was funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation, thank you to them. Um, and I completed the project while I was working um, entirely at Swiss Peace. I'm now based mainly at the University of Warwick. Um, and we had chosen three case study countries to focus um, on this question of resistance. I'll come to the conceptual part um, shortly. And why did we choose these particular case study countries? Um, well, at the time of, of requesting the money, which I guess was 2010, um, the, we uh, the three different case study countries were at a different stage of the transitional justice process. We're interested in separating them because of their chronology, but what they had in common was that there was some perception, both in terms of national commentary and also international commentary, about there being blockage or problems in the transitional justice process. Um, so, again, at the time of applying for the money, um, Cote d'Ivoire had just had its election uh, crisis and very quickly announced um, a transitional justice process. So that was at the beginning um, of the process. 
in, um, but there was a lot of discussions about whether or not it was going to be a victor's justice, um, a lot of resistance from the supporters of the former president, I'll be talking about them today. Um, and so there was kind of these complications around that case. Um, Burundi, uh, transitional justice process had already been agreed upon in the peace accords, in fact, um, but there were real problems uh, passing laws and implementing the process. So there was a, a perception of there being um, political will problems, essentially. Um, and in terms of Cambodia, they were very, um, towards the end of the process, um, the ECCC was kind of wrapping up some of its cases, sort of. And so there was a lot of the discussions about the legacy and the memory of the court. So a different kind of set of discussions based on the chronology of the process. Um, so that's how we chose the, the, the three case studies. Um, sorry about Cambodia, there's lots of problems to do with government interference, perception of there being government interference in the, in the process. Um, and so we had an original team of three researchers based in Switzerland, and uh, for the purposes of the book, we teamed up with um, national academics of the case study countries who also wrote chapters um, in the book as part of an exchange. We also had uh, one uh, postdoc based in, in Côte d'Ivoire um, who did, uh, in fact, most of the field work. Um, that I'm going to be uh, talking about today, um, and he's actually an ongoing collaborator in current projects we have also on transitional justice. Um, and so, yeah, so this is a, an edited book with two chapters on each uh, case study country. Um, so, how did we decide to do a research project on resistance? Why did I want to apply for money um, to do this? Well, I think it's not unreasonable now, I'm sure you're all aware of uh, the recent kind of 10, last 10, 15, 20 years of literature on transitional justice has taken what people call this kind of critical turn, particularly coming from sort of socio-legal perspectives and also political science, which is my perspective. It might be helpful to know that everyone involved in the project was a political scientist, so I'm sort of talking with that set of assumptions and hat on. Um, and so I think it's not unreasonable to start with an, a, a kind of a description of transitional justice as being, among other things, a political process. And that was kind of our starting point for the project. If we accept it as being a political process, uh, by which we meant kind of a series of negotiations between actors, um, so these different actors might be the conflict parties, they might be mediators, they might be the newly constituted government, they might be donor countries, civil society, victim survivor groups, etc. If we see it as being a kind of a process of negotiation, then the transitional justice that we end up with is a manifestation of the ability of certain actors to determine what justice looks like, potentially um, over other actors. And so um, this is kind of in a way sort of stating the obvious, but we absolutely don't see transitional justice as being a technical exercise or a neutral exercise in that, in that context. We see it as being embedded in certain discourses, in power relationships between actors, and always being a set of um, negotiations. So that's where we are kind of coming um, from. So one of the kind of then leaps we wanted to make was say, if this is our conceptual starting point, like many other scholars, if we build on that work, you might then actually expect resistance to be part of the kind of um, unfolding of a transitional justice process, the kind of actual experience of transitional justice, you might um, expect it to be part of the literature. And in fact, the transitional justice scholarship across disciplines does sort of identify flashpoints where you might get disagreements between actors. How do you make decisions about transitional justice, for example? So it might be about kind of the international local dichotomy, which is much debated and, and, and often criticised. It might be about the way in which transitional justice Policies are often embedded in a kind of un, uh, an international status quo that's quite uneven, unequal. 
It might be a, uh, problems about addressing the root causes of violence or not, for example. And so all of these are potential areas where, where actors might disagree about <coughs> what the justice process would look like. But it's really rare that resistance is mobilised as a concept in transitional justice scholarship. And when it is used as a concept or referred to, it's done often as a way of bringing in the spoiler debate. So it's often seen as being something which the bad guys do. So people with a stake in the previous regime, uh, uh, individuals who have got an interest in the transitional justice process not being successful, uh, individuals who may be just kind of morally bankrupt, like they quite like violence and war for various different types of reasons. So it's um, relatively simplistic, we would argue. Um, and what this does analytically or conceptually is it t always takes transitional justice as the norm and casts resistance as being somehow a response to that justice process because it's about the bad guys. So they're necessarily doing something which is deviant. Um, and therefore, resistance is a problem of implementation of the transitional justice process. So maybe you have, should have better outreach, you should create better buy-in, increase participation. It's not a kind of a political problem in that sense. It's a problem of implementation of the process. Um, so what that means is that the writing there is on resistance and transitional justice, a lot of which is really great, it's not, it's not that at all, it's just that it's very narrowly focused on specific set of actors. Uh, it's particularly associated with a former political elite or old regime loyalist, so Yelena Subotic has written a lot about this, for example, in the context of the former Yugoslavia. Um, it's also associated with groups who benefited from the regime, which has been associated with the violations. Um, Australia is an interesting case. Jacobs has written a lot about a kind of a backlash against Aboriginal Australian rights and reconciliation, ongoing reconciliation processes or requests for apology, for example, um, in, because there's sort of a growing feeling among some more privileged sections of the population it's kind of gone too far. Um, it's also been associated with those who are not ready to accept the justice which has been decided upon. So these might be bad victims. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the literature about good and bad victimhood. So if you take the, um, the grandmothers and the Plaza de Mayo and how they've kind of, the way they're written about now is they've kind of gone from being kind of heroic symbols of women refusing to give up, etc., and now kind of being like slightly annoying old ladies who kind of won't give up because society's trying to move on, etc. And um, that's not, obviously, these are kind of generalizations, but that's kind of the broad way in which the discussions um, are going. So what we argue in, uh, what we wanted to argue in the project, and why I think we do manage to argue in the book, is that um, resistance shouldn't be um, dismissed as only or, or even primarily the act of spoilers, although that might well be the case, because it doesn't reflect, in fact, the full empirical story of how transitional justice unfolds in context. Um, and even more than that, we think that, um, and I hope that we show, in fact, that there's a lot of analytical value in trying to see resistance as a legitimate object of inquiry and trying to understand it as something other than just framed in, in response to the norm um, of transitional justice, that we'll, in fact, be able to understand better transitional justice as a um, political process. Um, so what did we do? I mean, I've already mentioned this, which is the tendency to take transitional justice as a starting point. So resistance, therefore, is only about transitional justice. It's only about um, um, deviancy. It's a counterpoint to transitional justice, which is assumed to be necessarily good and, uh, and valuable, in fact. And this limits quite a lot our analysis of the transitional justice process. 
So I don't really have time to go into uh, lots of detail maybe about the kind of the resistance studies scholarship. Some of you may be familiar or not with it, but kind of broadly speaking from the 1980s onwards, there was kind of a shift in studies of resistance from primarily being focused on organized collective acts of resistance to thinking much more in terms of the everyday hidden forms of resistance associated with the work of James Scott, um, for example. And um, a lot of work by anthropologists and sociologists tells us that resistance, um, that tells us that transgression of established norms, we could read into that transitional justice, um, leads to the labeling of certain social acts as being deviant or being resistant. But that this is a very subjective kind of process. So it's a process of social labeling rather than a kind of, a, a kind of an objective reality in that sense. Um, so we drew a lot on the work of sociologists and anthropologists and also geographers um, Keith and Pahl, who did an edited volume on geographies of resistance, who write about the way in which it arises from local power relations and received and intended meanings. So we, in that sense, take an approach to resistance as being about various valid ways of conceiving of the world, to quote Raj Gopal, who writes on international law and resistance, um, not as being something which is in every context through all time as being about deviancy. So we're interested then in the process of labelling resistance. So how does an act or an actor come to be seen as being resistance or a resistor? What does that tell us about the relationships between the actors rather than what does that tell us about what's right and wrong in that society, as it were? Um, and we think that that's helpful because a lot of the literature on transitional justice is concerned with marginalised voice, is concerned with power relations, is concerned with positionality. And we think resistance, in the way it's being written about in resistance studies more broadly, can add a lot um, to that, uh, that literature. Um, so here's just a really brief overview of the book. You can look, uh, obviously, at that uh, in more detail afterwards if you'd like. Um, so there's a kind of conceptual chapters, uh, book ending, the volume, and then two case study chapters, written, one written by a member of the Swiss team, one written by a national academic, with, um, there's a section introduction to each case study section with a map and a transitional justice timeline. So if you're not familiar with that case study, it kind of gives you access um, into that. Um, it was designed to be this kind of broad exchange and quite plural and varied. We decided not to narrow um, what the authors were doing more than this particular conceptual approach. So they write about different types of actors, different types of resistance. Um, they're none of them are lawyers, in fact, but uh, political scientists and sociologists mainly writing in the book. Um, so with that kind of background in mind, uh, hopefully that will help you kind of understand a bit what I was trying to do in my particular chapter which is on um, Ivory Coast and discursive strategies of resistance. And I will start just with this quote, which I think is quite informative in a sense of my empirical entry point into the, into the case. So the quote, you can, you can see it on the screen, but it says, what we are doing is resistance. And if there is any better word that is stronger than resistance, it is a fight. It is resistance to the order that has been imposed on Ivory Coast, resistance to the involvement of France in the internal affairs of our country, Resistance to the ways in which the current regime has been managing the development of the country in terms of justice. So this was an interview with a representative of a coalition of Ivorian diaspora living in the United States of America. It was conducted by phone in English, actually, um, on the 29th of May 2014. And I think what's interesting about this quote, it's coming from someone who self-identifies as working in a coalition to resist the transitional justice process, is you can see immediately... Um, 
that this particular interviewee sees themselves as being oppressed on two counts. One by a transitional justice process, which is being imposed by a former colonial power, and one by a transitional justice process, which is biased and partial, and therefore not, in fact, um, just. So this coalition group organises quite proactive resistance. So, for example, they refused, they organised people to refuse to take part in the diaspora consultation platforms of the Dialogue and Truth Commission. Um, there were three platforms, New York, Paris and London, and they organised around that. And in fact, the New York platform ended up not being very successful at all. Um, they actively lobbied for the release of uh, the former president, Laurent Bagbo, from The Hague, where he's being held at the moment. His trial opened uh, early last year. Um, I guess people are aware of the kind of the recent revelations, controversies around the ICC and the former uh, special prosecutor. Anyway, one of those revelations has been that in fact Laurent Bagbo was kept in detention apparently without proper legal basis. So um, I'm still trying to find out exactly what effect that's having on this particular group and the work they're doing, but I think that will play into what I'm saying in an interesting way, although obviously the book's been published now. Um, so the, this particular interview, um, his experience was that he used to regularly speak in the media outlets of the USA, like Voice of America, for example, but that now he says that, quote, all those doors are shut. So he sees his voice and the voice he represents as being no longer invited into the public space to engage in a legitimate um, dialogue about what justice should look like in um, Côte d'Ivoire. So that's kind of, in, uh, in the sense, the empirical entry point for me. In terms of, of Côte d'Ivoire itself, um, Again, uh, it's interesting to have a little bit of the context, but I don't want to necessarily overdo this. Um, we did a year, about a year of field work within the context of this project. It's actually still ongoing because we're still working together, Adu and I. Um, but it was qualitative uh, field work, uh, semi-structured interviews, observations, uh, lots of focus groups because of the way in which uh, culturally and socially Ivorians like to organise in discussion groups, actually. Um, both in Côte d'Ivoire and also with diaspora in the United States. That's the name, Adu's uh, full name and affiliation. Is that the, um, that's the French acronym, the Swiss Centre for, Swiss Centre for Scientific Research in, in Côte d'Ivoire. Um, and he, uh, I'm obviously really indebted to him and our work together in, in gathering the data. So in terms of the context of, um, of Côte d'Ivoire, um, so they gained independence from France in 1960. Uh, it was then led as a country by one, it was effectively a one-party state, uh, Félix Houphouët-Boigny and his Democratic Party of Côte d'Ivoire, which remained the only political party until 1990. This is broadly seen as being a time of stability, management of uh, potential tensions um, and of economic prosperity uh, based on uh, cocoa and chocolate. Um, in 1993, uh, following uh, Houphouët-Boigny's death, uh, introduction of multi-party politics, there was a series of political crises which were connected to regional splits, ethnic divisions and also claims to autochthony. You might be familiar with the Ivoirite um, discourse, basically who's really Ivorian, who's really of the soil, who comes from that place. So it's a simplistically a kind of an immigrant, non-immigrant um, uh, division as it were. In 2002 there was a civil war, a unity government in 2003, a buffer zone which split the country into north and south, further violence, and then in 2007, the signing of a, a peace agreement. So following this, the 2010 presidential elections, which had been postponed, in fact, from 2005, were supposed to solidify the unity within the country, uh, the peace agreement of, of 2007, and meant to be a kind of a formal end to that, that peace process. 
But contested results in the second round of the election led to both the incumbent Laurent Bagbo, who's on the left, and Alison Ouattara, his opponent on the right, they both uh, claimed uh, victory. They both declared victory. So the Ivorian Constitutional Council declared Laurent Bagbo as the winner. Uh, then, very quickly afterwards, the AU, the ECOWAS and the UN supported Alison Ouattara amidst uh, levels of violence between 2010 and 2011. So the crisis finally ended. Uh, on the 11th of April 2011, when Laurent Bagbo was captured at his home, arrested um, with the involvement of French troops, um, and was taken to The Hague. So the transitional justice process consists of ICC um, cases which are open for Laurent Bagbo, Blegoudé, and also uh, Laurent Bagbo's wife, but she was um, convicted in national courts, and actually then later uh, the conviction was effectively overturned. Um, and there's been a state-sponsored uh, Truth and Dialogue Commission, a National Commission of Inquiry and National Prosecutions. One of the problems has been that until now they've, they've entirely uh, targeted, would be contextual of seeing it, but the, the description is that it's only been supporters of the former president that have been uh, prosecuted effectively. So this context tells us that, in fact, it's not really as surprising then that the state-sanctioned transitional justice process is going to have met with different forms of resistance. So it, in, its, in and of itself, it's a focal point for continuing discussions over citizenship, um, colonial, uh, neo-colonialism effectively, autochthony, economic collapse, etc. So it's kind of just a continuation of those uh, uh, negotiations and compromises. So... I thought it was particularly interesting to do research with and on actors who self-identified as opposing this um, transitional justice process, kind of the norm normally seen as the bad guys, I suppose, the spoilers, um, because I wanted to know what, they, what meaning they gave to the work that they did in that, in that sense. What did resistance mean to them? Why did they see what they were doing as resistance? How did they understand that? Um, and in order to do that, because they self-identified and talked quite readily about their resistance, I thought it would be helpful to think in terms of discursive strategies that they used so broadly, I drew on the work of two other scholars working in similar sorts of contexts, um, similar in terms of transitional justice, not in terms of other things, really. So one was the anthropologist Steff Janssen, who works on Serbia. And he wrote uh, an article on discursive strategies of resistance in which he said that they may strike us at first sight as emancipatory, progressive, or liberating, but may then be appropriated to serve oppressive purposes. And so this allows us an understanding of resistance to be deployed by different actors in different contexts, but uh, maybe at the same time, they might have different agendas. I also like very much another anthropologist's work, Mona Lilia. She works on Cambodia and resistance, particularly with a focus on gender, for those of you that might be interested in that. And she writes that resistance is therefore made possible by the ability of the subject to reflect upon prevailing discourses and to create new logics in the nexus of various contradictory discourses and subject positions. So like Janssen, the reason why I like both of their work is that they don't read discursive strategies as can kind of um, as linear and coherent, for example. They're quite messy. They create meaning um, over time and in different ways. They attach to objects and practices and bodies. So it's quite a nuanced way of thinking about how we can understand resistance um, in those um, contexts. Um, so the interviews that I'm going to be quoting come from four kind of main groups. One is the Committee of Actions for Côte d'Ivoire, this coalition of diaspora in the United States. 
One is the National Congress for Resistance um, and Democracy. One is another civil society coalition based in, in Abidjan, in Côte d'Ivoire. And one is the Ivorian Popular Front, which is the political party of the former President Laurent Gbagbo. Um, and so what was interesting here is that, um, I think it was mentioned in, in my introduction, is that the ideas of the unjust oppressor and the just cause really dominate the way in which the actors talk about their resistance, the way they frame um, their resistance. And the unjust oppressor was a really important figure in their descriptions and explanations, not only as a, just as a target of the resistance, but the kind of unjust character of the oppressor was cited, as, in fact, as a justification for the kinds of actions of those um, resisting. So there were two main elements, therefore, in their accounts. The first one was that President Ouattara and his supporters are not, in fact, um, legitimate political actors. And one is that the involvement of the UN and French forces was motivated by an illegitimate neo-colonial interference and desire for regime, regime change at the cost of Ivorian democracy. So some nice pictures here of Alassane Ouattara being very friendly with the French president. Um, I'm being obviously being very selective in the images I'm choosing here, so you can criticise that as much as you like in the Q&A. Um, so the illegitimacy of the status quo, um, so in the interviews with, in fact, all of the interviews, um, Ouattara is not actually referred to as the president. Um, he's referred to as Mr. Ouattara, and Laurent Gbagbo is referred to as President Gbagbo. So it's quite a simple point, but actually very effective when you're having a conversation with someone. Um, and this is connected, in fact, to the Ivoirite question because Ouattara had previously been banned from running as president because he was seen as having parents who came from Burkina Faso and he wasn't really Ivorian, therefore, and was not allowed to run for president for a long time. He was in France uh, being an economist for a while. Um, also, he's referred to as being a rebel, um, or rebels, for example, and so, um, and you have a language of occupation and resistance, which are often connected in the interviewees. So they talk about a regime which has been forced upon us. To my knowledge, the FPI—that's the um, Ivorian Popular Front, the political party—in good faith committed two errors. The first was to have accepted to enter into elections alongside armed rebels. The second, still in good faith, is to have accepted an electoral commission with all the rebels. Uh, Alassane Draman Ouattara was forced on Côte d'Ivoire by the French army, put there by a French coup d'état as part of a menace of reoccupation. We had a reason to call our organisation Resistance for Democracy because we are an occupied territory. So we can read into this a kind of a self-perception as being part of a fight against illegitimate political forces within Côte d'Ivoire, against neo-colonialism. They see themselves as fighting for Ivorian democracy and they frame their fight uh, for the release of Bagbo, for example, from The Hague as a combat uh, for the re uh, return of democracy um, to Côte d'Ivoire. And this came up a lot and it was really helpful for the interviewees. Um, I don't know whether kind of in an explicit way but I read it as being quite helpful to their broader narrative because what it allowed them to do when they said that they were fighting for Ivorian democracy was to frame their cause in a non-partisan way. And they quite often they would claim that theirs was a collective Ivorian cause um, rather than a pro-Bagbo cause. And of course the critics say that they're just supporters of the former President Laurent Bagbo. Um, so they say here, for example, the question of the sovereignty, the authority, and the capacity of the Ivorian people, regardless of their political affiliation, to decide who should be the leader of their country. And the avoidance of the transitional justice process is very much framed in terms of the lack of acceptance of, of the president's legitimacy. Um, any organisation, including the Truth and Dialogue Commission, that was set up by the illegitimate president of, the, of Ivory Coast, 
Mr. Alison Watara, we have stayed away because we don't trust the way it was put together and we don't trust the mission. There are unfortunate consequences of the government governance inspired by disregard for one's adversaries. This is the pitiable result of political choices based on the art of conquering, not convincing. We can see that under those people, Cote d'Ivoire has become a mother who buries her children. What's interesting is the interviewees actually move really quickly between these different points. And in the same breath, they claim to be uh, supporting a cause which is for all Ivorians. And then they move on to quickly saying, but we need to rebalance things because everyone is against us because we support Bagbo. And it's really uneven, it's really unequal. And obviously for them, this isn't at all a contradiction because it's how they're framing, how they see the world. But it, in the interviews, it seems like they're struggling with these different kinds of agendas or they're struggling with how to frame what it is that they're doing, um, for example. So kind of trying to write about or to deal with this interview material um, is difficult, eth ethically and methodologically, actually. <coughs> Because writing about resistance leads you very quickly into discussion about what's right and what's wrong, whether you wanted to go there or not, uh, about powerful and powerless. And this is the legacy of a really important, really rich field of study um, on resistance. Um, and I think it can be helpfully translated into transitional justice, which is in, very concerned with debates over standpoint, marginalised voice knowledge, imperialism, for example. Um, and to resist transitional justice on the surface seems to necessarily be a position of the immoral, of the unjust, of the kind of the warmongering, who doesn't want a transitional justice process, for example, it's crazy. And the purpose of the chapter in analysing and working with the stories of the interviews um, I've mentioned here was not to either be their apologist, um, nor to try and dismiss them and belittle their claims. And this is a really difficult, perhaps impossible kind of line to, to kind of seek to draw when you're uh, research working on these issues. Um, but I think it is important to try and understand and, and write about the meaning which these actors are giving to their forms of resistance, um, rather than just seeing it as kind of an unfortunate sticking point in this kind of triumphant march of transitional justice, particularly in Cote d'Ivoire, where the process has happened really, really quickly, um, and often to quite um, some concerns, but generally to, to sort of uh, international kind of support, for example. Um, and I think what's Interesting here is that the way they talk about resistance is to make sense of a really um, a kind of a nuanced interconnection of a series of grievances which the actors, the interviewers, are trying to address and to redress, in fact. Um, commentary on Cote d'Ivoire coming out, you know, from Cote d'Ivoire itself, but also from the UN, for example, implies that the resistance of the pro-Bagbo supporters, as they're kind of identified, should only be understood as a refusal to accept Bagbo's defeat. Um, and to a refusal to accept culpability for crimes against um, humanity. Yeah. But if we solicit and listen to their voices, other factors do in fact come into play. So one interviewee from the Civil Society Convention of Côte d'Ivoire made a really interesting distinction, I thought, between resistance and opposition. And this person said that today civil society is involved in the citizens' resistance, which should not be confused with citizens' opposition. Citizens' opposition targets power, while well, the citizens' resistance means citizens' independence, making proposals on national issues. And what was interesting is the interviewees did, in fact, identify different courses of action. So it's not just, in a sense, about blocking the process. They identified courses of action, like establishment <coughs> of the states general to address violence of the past, promote public dialogue, for example. There, there was a lot of concern about a very closed public um, space for debating justice and peace. 
Um, they also referred to aspects of the transitional justice process which much more quote-unquote moderate voices were also concerned about. So the lack of transparency in the work of the Truth Commission, which never made public its report, bias in prosecutions towards former supporters, uh, supporters of the former president, a lack of openness or explanation given by the UN for its decision to declare Alison Watera the winner after the Ivorian Constitutional Council declared um, Bagbo the winner, um, and concerns also about their experiences, the interview's experiences being eradicated from the public memory. Um, but then how far can we take this concern with just justice? How far should we take trying to deal with this interview material? Can we take at face value their motivations and intentions as they are expressed in themselves? How do we take on board their perspectives while maintaining our own moral judicial position on crimes against uh, humanity on past violence? And can the language of resistance be used as a discursive strategy by those who just wish to lend themselves a moral credence of the oppressed? Um, I think the subject warrants a lot more attention, obviously, and I think the book is kind of posing lots of those questions and just really trying to argue quite strongly for the analytical value of, of posing um, those questions. So the kind of sense, the take-home uh, messages, are like there's a value in taking transitional justice as the norm, as not, sorry, not taking transitional justice as the norm, because otherwise we can only see things which relate to transitional justice. If resistance is only about reacting to transitional justice, we can't hear it telling us things about neocolonialism, about questions around autochthony, vahite, etc. That we should see resistance as being something which is very subjective, that relationships of power will be changing and shifting all the time. Um, and that it's important if we want to do more work on resistance to, to research a diversity of actors in order to capture the different types of standpoints. It's still a really open field in that sense because um, there hasn't been much work done on, done on it. And that forms of resistance are, shift, forms of resistance are shifting categories whose meanings are constantly in flux. And it was for that reason that we were less concerned about a typology of resistance to transitional justice, much more in terms of how people gave meaning to the concept of resistance and what that told us about the politics of how that transitional justice process was kind of um, unfolding in those places at that time. So I think I'll leave it there, I think, um, and I look forward very much to your comments and questions, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>